welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. The following chapter is called The Horsey Bit. It was to be another of those Mvukwe's horsey events. God, they loved those horsey events. A Jim Carner at the club, followed by a paper chase, in this case on the Francis's farm. Now, a paper chase is a bit like a fox hunt, only we didn't chase foxes or jackals. We just went on a route around a farm over probably, could be up to 40, 50 miles in all. It was broken up with different legs, so you could stop in between and have a beer or have a, a glass of sherry or whatever it was. But there were Oh, my gosh, there were so many horses in those paper chases. It was really quite a thing. Anyway, unlike most people in our area, I rather dreaded the Christmas holes, if only because it meant paper chases, gymkhanas and riding clubs, all of which we felt obliged to take part in. Horses. Always bloody horses. They seem to be the bane of my life. When I was at Mbukwe's junior school, term was always punctuated by riding lessons at Fluff John's on their farm called Blighty. Admittedly, this did give us nippers a chance to get out of lessons. I thought back to those days spent on Blighty, which was in a beautiful part of Mbukwe's, overlooking the Chaweshi Native Reserve, wild, rugged and mountainous, passing through the winding, eucalyptus-lined roads to the farm in the rattling Ambukwe school bus, our school insignia, bright red and yellow flame lily painted on both sides. We used to sing and eat nibbles provided by the mum in charge, some of them more in charge than others. To me, riding lessons were tedious and frightfully strict once you were mounted. Out of the saddle, however... It was quite a different story. The afternoons were spent roaming about the blighty copies and exploring caves and marshy flays, throwing off our shoes who had run through pink seas of feathery cat's tails and get our jodpers covered in the twisted spines of spear grass. These were salad days, and while there was little love lost between horse and me, I did enjoy these adventures in the bush. It was not uncommon to see an old, fat and farting Labrador receiving far more attention than Junior. When we were younger, we were sent to the pony club on nearby Vigila Farm, owned by Felicity von der Hyde. My distrust of the steady steed and my even greater distrust of strange people, became apparent during these week-long events that seemed to drag on forever. I would count the hours until I was once again free to enjoy my holidays on Masitwi, horse-free. Pony Club was, for me, 
pony hell. Kids from all ages, often from frightfully posh families, used to arrive from all over Mashonaland, driving up with their smart horse boxes and even smarter horses with plummy accents. They would yell orders to their grooms and make snide remarks when our clapped-out Datsun pickup with Heath Robinson bamboo rails would shudder to a stop to offload the irate and dusty Pedro and Piccolo. Even our horses got in on the act by kicking or nipping the mares from town, often resulting in one of us copping a sound whack from a riding crop. In hindsight, these pony clubs were a lot of fun if you removed the whole horse element. The food was always sensational with tasty buffets laid out on corrugated iron trestle tables in the tobacco grading sheds. The older kids slept in a tented village in the garden, while we younger ones had to contend with dossing down in the creepy hallway of Granny von der Heide's house, her huge gilt-framed portrait staring at us wherever we went, and her grandfather clock terrifying us on the hour, every hour throughout the night. That is, until Tracy McGrath kicked it and it never tick-tocked till donged again. Sadly, I remember little of the actual lessons taught during those weeks, except a vague memory of trying to get our wild, rough-and-ready farm ponies to obey during dressage. A thankless task, made slightly funnier by the fact that our friend Larry Norton's pony, Star, was just that bit less tractable. Back in the Mvukwis village, we pulled into the Jack and Jill hair salon, owned by my mum's friend, Jill Robertson. The salon was nestled next to the garage where all the farmers sent their buggered-up tractors. The pink paintwork and flower boxes always looked out of place, adjacent to the shabby, untidy garage. That day, the salon was bursting with blue-rinsed ladies getting ready for the night ahead. Jill bounded over to us, curling tongs in one hand and a salad in the other. Drop that off at the club, will you? I'll be here for yonks. Those bloody Mulvin House women need hours of pampering. Mulvin House being the local old people's home. Along the road, Fred Youngman, the butcher, was leaning against his counter chatting to a couple of farmers. Fred used to take a particular pleasure when slicing down through a block of cheese with a wire cutter. An evil glint in his eye, perhaps inducing fond memories from his time in the Special Forces during World War II when he had to creep up behind the enemy and garrote them silently in the dark. The wire would glide through the cheese and send shivers down our spines. He waved cheerfully as we drove past. Christ, 
That last lot of rump was as tough as Henderson's ass, barked my dad. Next time we should buy our meat from the farmer's co-op. Good luck to that, I thought. John had worn false teeth since his twenties. Any piece of meat was going to be hard work for him. He came from a school of thought where you pulled a tooth rather than fill it in, resulting in a mouth that collapsed in on itself like a failed souffle. On one trip down to Joburg with all his buddies to watch a Curry Cup rugby final, the hotel maid chucked out his falsies while she was clearing his tea tray. It resulted in the entire long-suffering staff of the hotel donning rubber gloves and masks and rifling through the revolting bins until they found the nasty gnashes. During breakfast that morning in front of a room full of diners, the maitre d' swanned across the room to my father's table, bearing a huge silver salver and bowing down in an overly dramatic way. He lifted the lid with a flourish and announced, Your teeth, sire! A quick wash, and they were back home in Woody's mouth. Today we were going for a gymkhana at the Ambukwis club. I thought of poor Pedro stabled with those other horses. If Pedro disliked the pony clubs, he utterly abhorred gymkhanas. This was the moment he would wreak retribution and havoc, paying us back for the indignity of having to do dressage. This quiet, sweet little bush pony became an absolutely uncontrollable, stubborn and thoroughly spiteful nag. Not surprisingly, I generally came last at all the events, often ending in tears of shame and a good kick to Pedro when no one was looking. All you're good for is the knacker's yard, I would grumble, stroking his fat tummy. Glue, that's what you'll be made into. Glue. Pedro would respond with a loud rattle of farts. These constant failures prompted the Gymkhana committee to eventually come up with a booby prize for the losers. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, the compere piped over the tannoy for everyone in the greater Mashonaland area to hear. As you know, no one's a loser. So the consolation prize for the pole-bending race goes to, wait for it, drummers please. Peter Wood. Ach, shame, one could hear the murmurs from the sidelines as I shambled my way through the bales of hay to collect my rosette. My father would quietly pour himself another drink in the beer tent and mutter to the barman John Carr about all these bloody expensive riding lessons he spent on us kids. We drove past the utilitarian green government clinic and mortuary. Whitewashed breeze blocks on either side of the drive created makeshift seats for the long-suffering queue of people waiting to be treated. The clinic was open to everyone of all races and was generally teeming. The institutional building was run by a charming, imperturbable man called Dr. Scott. 
And like all bush doctors, he was a jack of all trades, having to perform everything from basic ops and sutures to full-on amputations and autopsies. I bury my mistakes, he was fond of telling us. He also loved sport and would turn up at the Mbukwe's junior school rugby matches where he could often be heard bellowing from the edge of the pitch. Go on, Mbukwe's! Kill him! Go on! Gouge his bloody eyes out! Just kill him! Who on earth is that ghastly man visiting parents would ask? Oh, him, one of the local mums would reply casually. That's Dr. Scott. Business must be bad. When I was about five years old, I was out riding with my mum. I always rode Pedro, who was incredibly gentle with us kids. Nearing the end of the ride, a snake on the track spooked the horse, causing him to bolt. I fell off and broke my arm. It was only a green stick fracture, but it hurt like hell and I bawled my eyes out all the way to the clinic. After about six weeks, it was time to have the cast removed. Arriving at the clinic without an appointment, we asked the nurse where the doctor was and were directed outside. Like an apparition from a horror movie, the doctor emerged from an outbuilding, which we later realised was the morgue. His usually spotless white coat flecked with blood and some grisly pale gunge. And in his hand, he held a circular saw bloody with bits of gristle and bone stuck to it. Oh, hello, young man, he said, quite oblivious to the fact that he looked like Vincent Price in the tomb of Ligeia. So you need your cast taken off, do you? Well, I'm damn busy right now. Oh, to hell with it. Let's just do it now. Won't take a minute. I've been using it to open up the skull of a man who died from some hideous disease. And with that, he held down my arm and using the whizzing bloody electric saw began to cut off my cast. I think my poor mum nearly fainted. I loved every minute of it. Talking of casts, he went on, oblivious to the trauma around him, last week I had a black chap in here going crazy. He had boiling water poured over his arm and we bound him up, but for weeks he nearly went mad. You see, his arm just never stopped itching. Was that from the burns, my mum asked, trying not to notice the whizzing saw getting closer to my skin. God, no, Dr. Scott said. Apparently some flies had laid their eggs on his burnt skin. It was the maggots, you see, maggots. Can you imagine, Libby? Now, young man, hold your arm still. I don't want to cut you. Anyway, as I was saying, the maggots had hatched in his arm and were eating him alive. But to tell you the truth, Lib, I've never seen such a good job, ever. No scar, nothing. These bloody worms had eaten all the dead skin and left the bugger with the most beautiful new skin, like a baby. Aha! There you go. Clean. He patted me on the head. No one was off limits to the doc. My father once had an operation for his piles. Anything relating to that part of the body or any of those bodily functions was a no-go area for my father, who was rather prim and proper, to be fair. Drinking quietly in the corner of the bar of the club with his mates, Bill and Ben, Dr. Scott appeared at the door, looking around to see who was present, then roared, Evening, Woody! How's your backside? Every eye in the pub turned to John. All you could hear was the clicking of Dawn Fussell's double-stranded pearls. 
Mortified, John turned away and mumbled something under his breath. Scott was not one for giving up that easily. You should have seen him with that cotton wool up his jacksy, he continued to his captivated audience. My God, he looked like a bloody bunny girl. Friday, the steady barman, was still chuckling to himself half an hour later. Often it was not possible to get a patient up to the clinic and so we had to take things into our own hands. Early one morning there was a knock on the kitchen door. Fred rushed through to the dining room. Madam, you had better come. Big problem. Maningi Shupa. There, standing outside the back door, seemingly without a concern in the world, was Meshek, one of my father's cattlemen, with an axe sticking out of his head. A long-handled African-style demor axe wedged into his skull. Yet there he was standing as if a tomahawk in your head was just another of life's irritating trials akin to a thorn in the foot or a stubbed toe. Sorry, madam, he apologised, but my missus caught me with another woman. Aye, she was very angry. I need some mooty. John, my mum called, you had better come and see this. My father had been schooled in the Scottish doctrine where you ate hard knocks for breakfast and poked holes in the newborn lambs if they were born without arseholes. He took a deep breath and told the man to brace himself. He grabbed the axe by the handle and slowly began to ease it out. Wedged very deeply, the blade made a truly gruesome sound as it was worked out of the scowl. and a sickening, sucking sound, the axe came out. Give him a couple of aspirin lib, said Woody, handing the axe to the startled cook before returning to his now cold breakfast. Tell him he can take the day off, but I want those cattle dipped tomorrow. Mishak lived to see another day and was there to dip the cattle, despite the splitting headache. He and his wife divorced. Condor was another man my father would describe as rough as a goat's knee. He had been over to the Harrington's compound one Sunday, getting plastered on Chibuku beer, a thick, drool-like home brew. Returning home on his bicycle, he went off the Harrington's rickety bridge on the Masitwi River. It was a terrible fall of some 30 feet onto jagged rocks. Incredibly, Condor survived, but his right foot was almost severed. With the stoicism and bravery of a warrior, he picked himself up and, carrying his broken bike, limped the five miles back to the house with his foot dangling by a thread. Not once did my mum hear him complain or cry out or even whimper as she hurtled over the bumps in the truck, going, as my father would put it, like shit of a shovel to the clinic. Once there... Dr. Scott lovingly sewed the foot back on. Condor's rehabilitation took several months, but he was back at work, slightly wobbly and still uncomplaining. The locals weren't the only ones who were tough, don't get me wrong. Despite all her girly traits, Mum also seemed immune to pain and as tough as old boots, once impaling herself on a garden stake, the bamboo stick going straight through her calf muscle. 
shouting for Shy in the garden boy, who immediately fainted on seeing the blood, she clambered into the truck and took off for Mbukwe's with a newly revived Shine, trying to stem the flow of blood. As the journey progressed and more and more blood was lost, she began to veer from side to side, driving like a drunkard, coming in and out of vision, finally getting to the clinic just in time. Much to the relief of poor Shine. A few stitches from the doctor, and she was on her way back to finish the pruning. Shine took the rest of the day off. Snake bites, axe wounds, even the odd ear bitten off by an angry wife, all this was normal on the farm. It amazed me that we only had the most rudimentary first aid box, aspirin, mercurochrome, band-aids, and a large brown bottle of cough mooty. Now back in Mbukwe's, we approached the pink stucco Anglican church. I need to drop off the French letter, my mum said. St Andrew's Anglican church had been presided over for as long as I could remember by the indomitable Father French. Its Virginia creeper-clad clock tower dominated the village and pastoral skyline. Father Basil French was no ordinary priest. Born in the UK, he came out to Rhodesia to take his place in the Mbukwe's parish long before many of us were born. He had married a retiring small dormouse of a lady called Grace, who I have absolutely no doubt ruled the roost behind closed doors. Father French was flamboyant and loved the ceremony of it all, walking down that aisle adorned in his embroidered dress of cassock, surplus, academic hood, and a tippet. The young boys from the Ambuquis Junior School, as choristers, always led the way, holding aloft the cross and the candles, while the top of Grace's head would bob up and down behind the large organ near the altar, banging out hymn after hymn. Father French's booming voice would echo around the church and rebound off the walls, rattling the coloured stained glass windows commissioned by Barbara Warren in memory of her late husband Wallace, whom she had little time for when he was alive, but immortalised in death. Not surprisingly, Father French totally immersed himself in the life of the district. He joined in the dramatic society plays Light of Foot, deep of voice and large of frame. Like all district priests, he officiated at the many christenings, farm weddings and funerals, especially funerals during the height of the Bush War. Being an ex-army chaplain, Father French was often the first to be told by the army if there had been a tragedy in the district, an ambush, or worse, the death of a beloved son in the war. This was the time of fuel rationing, and not even God could intervene in that respect. Frenchie would cover the entire Mbukwe's, Centenary, Mount Darwin, Sipalilo and Rafangora districts, some 17,000 square miles, always rocking up on his clapped-out BSA motorbike, which could be heard farting from miles away. With his faith in the Lord in one hand, and faith in the engineering of the Birmingham Small Arms Company Limited in the other, he would be seen careering over rutted roads and gullies, quite impervious to landmines or ambushes, and usually dressed 
in a muddy black oilskin coat, wellies, and a black waterproof hat, looking every bit like a benign Paddington bear. He was always the first to console a grief-stricken family, so his appearance at your front gate wasn't necessarily always welcome. Once, one of his visits backfired royally when he turned up unexpectedly at Martin and Betty Chance's farm. Poor Betty, she got the fright of her life, as she was so sure that his son Gordon, who was away on active duty at the time, had been killed. Ducking her head like the pink panther, Betty leopard-crawled across his sitting-room floor and then ran around the back and hid behind the pawpaw patch in the veggie garden, as she couldn't face Father French. He never made that mistake again, he said, and always phoned first before going to see anyone, except for one memorable occasion when he pitched up at our house on Masitui in the aftermath of a rather drunken party thrown by my parents. Frenchie was greeted by the sight of Sam Marnie, a man of many talents, drinking being one of them, lying fast asleep, snoring on the veranda floor, castle lager bottle still gripped firmly in his hand. An almost naked Norrie Spicer, who suffered from alopecia, his hairless, lily-white reputation covered in a rather disturbingly tight leopard-print budgie smuggler, was lying on his back, blowing a four-and-a-half-foot copper trumpet held tightly between his toes. Unperturbed, Father French stepped over Sam's body, turned down the volume of Lulu singing My Boy Lollipop, You Make My Heart Go Giddy Up, and joined in the revelry for about an hour. On leaving, he got up, made the sign of the cross and said, Bless you, my children. I will pray for you all, and roared off on his bike. Father French sent a monthly newsletter to the parishioners titled, inappropriately, The French Letter, in which he recorded births, deaths, christenings, and, of course, all the local gossip. You could run, but you couldn't hide, literally. Mum had the only Ronio machine in the district and would print the FL, as it was known, every month. It was customary for Church of England children to be confirmed when aged 10. Like the Anglican Church, the world over, this involved a confession, or as they like to call it, the Sacrament of Reconciliation. For a 10-year-old, having never had to confess to anything before, this was puzzling. Rather than anonymously stepping into a confessional box like the Catholics, we were presented with a textbook filled with all the sins of man written in neat columns down the left-hand side. All one had to do was tick the box next to the appropriate sin. How clean! How English! Henry VIII probably did have a point. I read down the list, blimey! I've no idea what these sins even mean, let alone whether I've ever committed any of them. Most of the boys finished their ticking suspiciously quickly and ran out to play amongst the gravestones. Rather than burn in hell for all eternity, I felt it was wiser to confess to everything and seek reconciliation later. And so I ticked all the boxes, every 
single one of them. When Father French came up to me and read my now very long list of sins, I recalled the twinkle in his eye as he peered at me over his reading glasses. Adultery, he said, raising an eyebrow. Well, well, Peterwood, in that case, I absolve you of all your sins. Over Christmas, the paper chase used to be the event of the season, based loosely on the English fox hunt, as I already said, but with no fox, no hounds, and certainly no blooding, the paper chase was, simply put, a point-to-point, ridden through the bush over, I don't know, a 40-mile course, hurdles, giant jumps made of fallen logs, ditches, rivers, dams, and massive gullies were no obstacle to these crazed equestrians. They were exhilarating and fun and terribly dangerous at times. Anything from 20 to 50 horses took part, ridden by people of all ages. Each leg of the race was punctuated by a tea break, actually a tractor-trailer loaded with ice-cold beers and plenty of grog. By the end of the last leg, many a rider was, well, to put it mildly, perfectly legless. The paper chase might take the best part of the morning, followed by a sumptuous, boozy late lunch or a braai in the gardens of of the host farm. Horses aside, they gave everyone a chance to catch up and mingle without having to dress up. It puzzles me, Woody said. I mean, the club committee insists that us rugby buggers shower before entering the bar. Yet these horsey types, they just charge in, smelling of saddle soap and horse shit. We all have our pièce de résistance, or in my case, a swan song. That Christmas, Bill and Anne Francis were hosting a paper chase on Galloway Estate. Pedro was too old for this sort of thing, so I was rather happy to be left on the sidelines with a castle lager in my hand. I was old enough to know better. Hello, Pete, a bold voice called. It was Alison Worley Birch, astride a huge palomino. Golly, aren't you riding today? Alison had a commanding voice, one which few people could ignore. Several riders looked over. Before I could answer, she boomed. Of course you must ride. Good heavens, Libby. Why didn't you bring him a horse? Val, get the groom to saddle up Crackerjack. He's one of our polo ponies, you know. You'll love him. But be gentle on his mouth. Crackerjack, I visualized a small, friendly pony. I watched in horror as this war horse was led from the stable. It was a monster. Actually, it wasn't a pony at all, more like a stallion in my eyes. I had little choice, what with everyone looking on. So thanking Alison for being so thoughtful, I mounted the beast. As he snorted, pawed the ground and skipped sideways, I knew that I was not the one in control. Crackerjack became Beelzebub and with a final snort, cantered in the direction of the other horses. Dare Beelzebub had one gear, flat out. Sensing my nervousness, he flattened his ears, flared his nostrils, and took off. Be gentle on his mouth! Good heavens, be gentle on his fucking mouth. At first, all went well. What with the wind in my hair, the feel of a strong beast between my legs, 
taking the jumps in a stride, waving to the other riders as I rode gracefully past, laughing as I overtook them, watching them grow smaller and more distant. I felt a certain surprise, shall we say, as the other riders disappeared from view altogether. On the horizon across the field of rose grass, I saw the distant, hazy feature of a single copse of waterberry trees, growing less hazy, getting closer, sharper, growing bigger and bigger, the branches hanging down to a certain height. What height? Were they eight feet above ground? Seven? No, they looked more like the height of Beelzebub. Funny that, I thought, as I crashed through the trees, the sound of snapping branches exploding all around me, thundering like a juggernaut, unstoppable, the noise in my ears, the wind gone out of me. The beast was now through the trees, unscathed, and I was tumbling across the ground, head over heels, finally coming to a rest with a jarring crunch and a groan against a termite mound. Beelzebub never stopped running and actually ended his days with a bullet to the head. Although I'm reliably informed, not because of me. I, on the other hand, had the misfortune to have to walk bloody and scratched into the apre lunch party, my new t-shirt emblazoned sex lessons, first lesson free, now tattered and torn. My riding days were over. Or so, I hoped. Well done, Woody, shouted someone from the polo set. Get this man a beer. Looks like he bloody well needs it. Being a glutton for punishment, I soon found myself once again in a situation involving horses. This time, lots and lots of them. When I left school at the tender age of 17 to go into the army, I found myself in the uncomfortable position of being one of the youngest in that year's intake of soldiers. As with all armies, the first 10 days involved a selection process for the different battalions and departments. My dream was to enter the Rhodesian Light Infantry, commonly thought to be cannon fodder, but also incredibly brave and adept. They also had the best uniforms. The selection process began at Llewellyn Barracks in some godforsaken place near the Somabula Flats. There were hundreds trying out for different units that year, and the RLI, as the Rhodesian Light Infantry was known, were taking only 25 men, 25 men out of some 1,500 recruits. The elimination began. All right! Who here is under 18? the NCO barked. Delighted to be helpful and looking willing, I raised my hand with gusto. Then you're out, said the recruitment office, his face expressionless. I then remembered my brother's advice. Never volunteer for anything in the army. Too late. That was it. No choice. I was out. Just like that. No press-ups until you fall, no running until you drop out in three short words. I was devastated. In a panic, I looked around me. There were only two choices left. There was the Signals Corps, a bunch of losers in my estimation, and an ugly uniform to boot. 
or the Grey Scouts, the country's mounted infantry regiment. Horses. So, with a sigh, I drew myself up and resigned myself to a full year surrounded once more by bloody horseshit. The room where the Grey Scouts were having their pep talk was the size of an aircraft carrier, crowded with some 400 men, all sitting upright, fists closed on knees, staring rigidly ahead as a commanding officer strode up and down the podium, singing the praises of the Grey Scouts. Finally, after what seemed like the dreariest hour of my life, he turned to stare at us all, one after the other, taking a moment to give it all the right amount of oomph, and delivered his punchline. The Grey Scouts are the best regiment in this army, with the finest and bravest soldiers in Rhodesia, so if there's any of you out there who think that they don't have the balls to take this, stand up now and walk out. A breathless silence engulfed the room. Not a cough, nor a squeak, nor a sound. Then I stood up, and head held high, I walked, and walked. Eight hundred eyes followed me in my march of shame. You could have heard a penny drop. No sooner was I out of the hangar than everything came rushing back to me. The exhilaration of having listened to my instincts engulfed me in waves. No more horses. No more fucking horses. But then what? Hardly a soul stirred in the entire barracks. All the hangars were silent. Their doors closed. Their selection processes over. Not even a breeze stirred. Even the wind seemed to have held its breath. An MP with his red beret rounded the corner. Excuse me, sir. I'm not a bloody sir, you idiot. I'm a sergeant, you little twit. Excuse me, sergeant, I continued. But can you tell me in which hangar the RLI are having their selection? He eyed me up and down suspiciously and then laughed. The RLI, they made their selection over an hour ago. You're way too late. It's the signals for you, buddy. As a goodwill gesture, he waved his hand in the vague direction of a small corrugated iron building, indicating that that was where the RLI were. Then he strode off. But you're wasting your bloody time, he called back. I entered the hallow halls of the RLI selection room to be met with my second stony silence of the day. Twenty-five lads in a row, being lectured to by a fit-looking man, covered in silver pips. What the hell do you want? he asked. All twenty-five heads turned to see who had interrupted such an important talk. With a trembling lip, I stammered, I, well, I want to be in the RLI, sir. I left school to be part of this battalion, sir. I've only ever dreamed... Oh, shut up and stop blubbering, he said with an amused twinkle. Sit down. You're in. And so it was that I got into the RLI, and so it came to pass that I became the last person ever to enter the 1st Battalion of the Rhodesian Light Infantry. Unknown to us, that very day, Robert Gabriel Mugabe became the first black Prime Minister of Zimbabwe Rhodesia, and the rest is history. Well, that's about it. 
Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.